In a rather controversial blog post I wrote back in March, I named fake news as one of four key developments that, in combination, pose a huge threat to the world of PR and communications. Alex Myers is CEO of Manifest, an agency that's grown to have offices in London, New York and Stockholm since he founded it nine years ago. He has some pretty strong opinions on the way that fake news is being used across the media. I think that fake news, especially online, has become almost a phrase that is able to be used around news that has been deliberately misappropriated. The reason they're able to do that, I think, is the trash fire of Twitter, where the currency is no longer community, it's outrage. What you find at the moment, though, is that media are really keen to cover the social media backlash around things because that allows them the freedom to not need to represent the context, but just represent the context everyone else gave the story. So all you need is one troll on Twitter and you can completely flip any story that you like. That outrage on social media becomes clickbait within digital media, which then becomes print and, and broadcast and you know the mushroom cloud grows. As a result of the threat of fake news, Alex thinks it's time to reassess how communicators disseminate news through traditional and social media. There's a renewed reason to go traditional media first. I think maybe five years ago you would say, let's get everything on social media so that when you speak to a journalist you can say, look, there's already loads of conversation around it, you need to get this covered now. I disagree that that's the right thing to do now. I think that you can get considered articles written and then have those be the content that gets shared with less ambiguity across social channels. They're often desperate to be outraged. In today's show, Alex and I discuss what fake news actually is, how communicators can combat it, and how his client Brewdog became embroiled in a situation completely out of their control. This is Digital Download, a podcast that explores the latest thinking in digital communications, PR and social media. Here's your host, Paul Sutton. Thanks for joining me this morning, Alex. How is life in Manifest? Because you're kind of conquering the world at the moment, aren't you, with London, New York, Stockholm. Any plans for anything else? Uh, it's good, thank you, Paul. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know whether conquering the world is an accurate description. <laughs> just conquering my to-do list it appears to be an impossible challenge at the moment. But um, no, it's fun. We're just having fun with it, really. How come you ended up in Stockholm, by the way? Because that's always intrigued me. But why, why Sweden specifically? Uh, We've always had clients in Sweden, mainly because they quite like both craft beer and technology, which we work in quite a lot. So I was over there interviewing some freelancers to do some work for us locally for an amazing brand called Houdini. And they were just amazing. So sort of halfway through the interview, I just said, I don't suppose you fancy setting up Manifest Stockholm, do you? And they said yes. And the rest is history, really. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, we are today going to talk about the big topic of fake news, which is one of the the major kind of trends that's impacting communications at the moment. And I have to thank you for jumping onto this so quickly with me, because you have encountered something along the lines with your client Brewdog in the last few days, really. The story comes about because of their link with a US brewer called Scofflaw. As I understand it, Brewdog had agreed to distribute Scofflaw's beer throughout the UK and launch it here. Now, what happened is sometime during the last few days, an email went around to God knows how many journalists with a whole bunch of weird PR style redneck tactics in it and offering free beer in the UK to people as long as they were a Donald Trump supporter. Have I kind of summarised that correctly? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty accurate summary, Paul, yeah. Um, so last week was a, um, a bit of a whirlwind 
um, to be honest. Um, yeah, the, the context from, I guess, the agency standpoint, um, where we were, was um, around midweek last week, um, we started getting contacted by journalists showing us a press release they'd been sent on behalf of Scofflaw, saying that Brewdog was going to offer free beers to Trump supporters, which at first I thought might be a practical joke, yep. but it turns out it wasn't. Was that the first you'd heard of it then, in terms of you know you getting proactively contacted by journalists? Yes, yeah. So we're, we're quite lucky in the sense that um, a lot of obviously certainly the beer journalists know us really well. We've worked with Brewdog for eight years now, so yeah, we, we've been around a bit. So they got in touch knowing that it was something that wasn't just weird to do in the UK, but also that it, it directly contradicted a lot of things we've done with Brewdog around Trump's position on certain things from climate change through to um, border controls. So. It was more starkly different um, than it would have been for another brewery that hadn't done those things. So um, people immediately smelt something fishy, really. Yeah, the whole thing seems really bizarre, actually, because, you know, Brewdog is kind of known for its opposition to Donald Trump's policies. And that, you know, that's that's not new. But Scofflaw, when you look at it, has, as I, again, as I understand it, has never actually expressed any support for Trump in himself. So those two things just don't match up. And and like you say, you've, you've got journalists who maybe understand that, who are approaching you and saying, well, I mean, what, what did they say to you? Were they approaching you saying, is this right? Or were they saying, what the hell are you doing? Um, there's a little bit of a mix. Um, but I, most, most of the time they were asking if there was a comment from Brewdog, I think, before we'd got a chance to um, react. I think they knew that we didn't know anything about it. Right. Um, certainly the guys who knew us knew. But yeah, they were looking for what the response was from Brewdog because obviously they wanted to get the story out as soon as possible, really. Because the, um, the story was already out on Twitter. So that's where the sort of the timescales, obviously, in, in this day and age change quite dramatically. So you can't craft the story with the journalists and provide, you know, an objective standpoint because effectively the opinions are already out there. Uh, the screen grabs of the emails, you know, the uh, the full press release um, that we've never seen yep. um, being shared with the world. So it's a little bit different in terms of the response process. So how did you get to the bottom of what was actually happening with this? It was a bit of an um, as-we-went scenario because we needed to respond before we'd got to the bottom of it. That's naturally the challenge with any sort of issue like this is that speed's of the essence. So we could only work with the facts that we had, which is we nobody at BrewDog had been made aware of, um, of what this was. Um, we'd never been approached by Scofflaw or their PR agency about it, and certainly no one at Manifest had. And it directly contradicted, um, as I said, because it does contradict a lot of what Brewdog stands for. So we initially started drafting um, a, a tweet and a statement to say we didn't know anything about this. And of course, it's not happening because we needed to get that information into the public sphere as soon as possible. So I think that was within the hour um, of us first hearing about it that we'd managed to respond. And you referenced Twitter there. What role was social media playing in propagating this story and making it something bigger than perhaps it should be? I think um, if people like jump into conclusions, Twitter is often the trampoline. I think they uh, it, it's turned into a bit of an outrage machine recently. And yeah, yeah. You know, people immediately almost wanted both Scofflaw and Brewdog to be backtracking on something that they'd agreed to because that was just a nicer, easier thing to be outraged about. Um, rather than having to learn about what was still an unknown context for us. So 
one thing that we were able to do is learn from a lot of um, you know issues we've had similar to this with Brewdog, where we've uh, we've had stories that people have perhaps misinterpreted online. So we, we knew that we needed a broader context providing than 140 characters would give us, or obviously more now. So we we quickly drafted a blog post that gave exactly the context for us um, and, and used that as the principal content that we were tweeting and tried to drag everyone towards that so that they could see the context from our point of view and, and obviously understand that you know, that certainly wasn't BrewDog's position. This wasn't a case of backtracking on something they'd agreed to do. It was something that we'd never even heard about in the first place. Yeah, which must be a really weird position to be in where, like you say, you've got to deal things really quickly. You can't wait around for to find out what's going on, but you've got to be responsive extremely quickly. At the time, did you think it was Scofflaw or the agency or, you know, what, what was your opinions at that time? Or was it just a case of what the hell is going on? We had an open mind, but I think just bearing in mind the context of understanding the PR process, the approval process, we, I, I, my assumption immediately was that this wasn't approved by anybody because it would be strange for Scofflaw, for whom Brewdog is a customer, to want to share something that I guess is obvious they wouldn't like. Yeah. But I'd assumed that they'd not approved a version of the story, but that the unapproved version had gone out. That was the, the only sensible conclusion I could reach. It turns out it was a little bit stranger than that. But yeah, that's that's where we were at. So we were trying not to blame Scofflaw or any agencies, anything involved. We were just trying yeah. to establish what Brewdog's position was because that was the only solid ground we had, really. Yeah, and you say it turned out to be a little stranger than that. In what way? So it turns out that Scofflaw, certainly from Scofflaw's point of view, they have said that um, they had no knowledge or approval of this either. Yep. And then the only thing we have to go on is a tweeted statement from the agency in question that says it was one employee acting alone, which sounds like the weird description of a shooter. But um, <laughs> it was, um, it, I don't know whether just knowing how agency systems work, it could be one rogue element that has just decided to come up with such a controversial story, yeah. not need to find any approval for it and decide to disseminate that to national media. It just felt a little bit, a little bit odd that no one certainly inside the agency had seen it either. Yeah, like I said, the whole thing seems really bizarre. And especially when you consider... In a way, it's a genius piece of creative writing <laughs> because you think of things like, I don't know, the, the baby Trump balloon and, and the, the protests that were in this country. And then you get this, which is only a few weeks after. It's not very long ago. I don't know whether you could describe it as genius. <laughs> I, I've, I've got to say, but at the same time, I understand that there's a creative process and that that's what the approval systems are for. And I understand there are old versions of releases hanging around. What I don't get is that if an idea wasn't approved or hadn't been seen by the client, how it went as far to have a release drafted about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, for us, it was all about putting Brewdog on the front foot. So the first thing that we did was reestablish our position by offering a free beer, but not Scofflaw, yeah. but Brewdog to anyone who turned up to Brewdog bars and said, you know, they're a supporter of love, not hate. Right. Which is a, a, a sort of a message we've carried before with Brewdog campaigns. And also to just try and make up for any perhaps shock or disappointment felt even if it wasn't anything any of our doing by Brewdog customers but to just try and take some kind of proactive approach to things too and um, which again is always well received on Twitter when you're able to do something proactive and not just reject stuff because obviously we at this point were the only people reacting yeah so the scofflaw um, had claimed confusion but other than that we'd not heard much and then other they'd not approved the release as well but then the agency weren't replying to Scofflaw or to Brewdog or to the wider general public. So it was very difficult for us to know actually 
if what Scofflaw was saying was was true, yeah. and you know what the actual situation was, if there was you know some kind of issue at Brewdog that no one else at Brewdog was aware of, we needed to know as soon as possible. So we had everyone phoning everyone internally. No one had heard anything about anything. Um, and then the other thing that we did was found the release that we had approved, which just said that Scofflaw was going to be available in Brewdog bars and that there was going to be tasting events in some of them. So we then we then started sharing that with journalists to to tell them, to sort of demonstrate to them what had been approved at Brewdog's End and that there was no mention of any creative around Donald Trump or anything else, yeah, yeah. which was, I think, important for us to use what collateral we had. Uh, and we also shared, uh, reshared a couple of the campaigns we've done. So Bar on the Edge, where we built a bar across the US-Mexico border yep. and Make Earth Great Again, where we um, produced a protest beer after Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah. Um, so we, we ensured then that any coverage that covered the whole thing at least included BrewDog's previous position, as they would put it, or as they would see it, and used BrewDog's actual values as the, um, the context, rather than it just being a case of, here's the information from today. And how's that been received? I mean, that, that proactive approach do you think that's gone down well? I don't know on on social media specifically, but with the media. Yeah, I think it was um, it was well received generally. Um, there's a few sort of commentators within sort of the craft beer scene who are very keen to um, to criticise Brewdog for anything that they can. Right. So we have to be super aware of that. That a we don't look like we're throwing scofflaw under the bus. B that um, we we're not trying to look like this is some kind of weird you know backwards PR campaign. And C that we we're not turning it into a bandwagon to jump on as well. The main thing for us is just can we answer the question, are we doing the right thing here? And making our point of view clear as quickly as possible, offering you know the wider community the offer still, but on Brewdog beer, so that it didn't look like we were retracting something from, from the customers. Yeah. And also giving us something to, to talk about that wasn't just an error we didn't really know the context or the background to. And you referenced there this idea of it being a, a backwards PR campaign, which I have seen people saying the release itself is the PR campaign it, it was intended to have this effect it's not a view that i share because it, it just doesn't ring true to me but i mean what's your opinion obviously you know the detail more than i do but have you at any stage thought this was just a very weird strange pr campaign or have you been aware of people saying actually this is a piece of brewdog publicity um no i mean people immediately jump to the conclusion that it's a piece of brewdog publicity because of what we've done before but we understand we made the bed we lie in yeah but i think you know you've always got to zoom out i guess to a ten thousand feet view and just see okay well what would be the objective of said pr campaign yeah and i, I just can't pick out what the objective would be if scofflaw was to do it effectively they are launching in the uk by angering the only person launching them in the UK yep. would seem, you know, very backwards. Um, and then um, from a BrewDog standpoint, it's a case of reversing a previous position for the sake of getting national criticism. Even in, in uh, you know, the standards that we've set with BrewDog, I don't think that that's, um, that's something we would, uh, a track we'd ever go down. So it just seemed implausible straight away. But I think the strangeness of the situation is evidenced by the fact that people, um, you know, were trying to jump to that conclusion also because... There was just very few plausible conclusions to jump to. And like I said, it, it turned out in a, in a, as a result that you know, it was a case of an agency sending something no one had seen or approved. And that is a really bizarre situation that I've never witnessed before. Certainly not with anything this controversial, no. uh, where you would think the approval process would be you know, a heightened significance. The Digital Download Membership Scheme gives you on-demand advice, support and coaching when you need it. 
With exclusive online training, video Q&As with topic experts, and a members-only network to discuss all of the latest developments, it gives you the confidence and the peace of mind you need to succeed in digital communications. But don't take my word for it. The thing I find really valuable is that we all share best practice and we tell each other about things that we've learned. We share information on absolutely everything from the latest industry trends to how to manage a new algorithm change. So some really practical information. But I also really like the slightly more formal learning element to it. So in our regular calls, we can focus on a specific subject. It's also a really unjudgy space, which I really like. So I can always ask the kind of questions that I'm pretty sure I should know the answers to, but I don't. So I'm always learning something new, which is um, really useful in an industry that changes every two minutes. I'm Kate Hartley. I run a company called Polpio, which does crisis simulations for brands and agencies. And I also run a PR agency called Carrot Communications. For full details of the membership scheme, visit paulsutton.co forward slash members. In your follow-up, you used the words fake news because in a tongue-in-cheek way, you were linking it to Trump. Fake news in itself is becoming, in my view, almost a a bandwagon, an excuse for things that might go wrong. Do you know what I'm saying by that? Yeah, so we use the term fake news in our response simply to make a bit of a tongue-in-cheek reference to Donald Trump because, again, whatever we do from a BrewDog standpoint, there is still a level of irreverence, you know, where, you know, statements like this can appear overly formal. But also we wanted to, um, again, some our nose, I guess, a little bit um, at Trump. Yeah. But I think that generally it's odd. Yeah, that it's a term that's able to be pushed out, um, which doesn't say I didn't do it. Yeah. Certainly, politicians are using quite a lot. <laughs> I guess yes. it's an oxymoron. Anyway, fake news because essentially news is reporting objectively on something that happened, and it can't really be fake. It can be wrong. Um, but it can't really be fake. So I think that um, that oxymoron gives people a lot of poetic license. And that on social media certainly gets used quite a lot. And it's used jokingly a lot as well. So it's become something that means more than what it did originally um, when it was just a piece of spin, I think, from the Trump campaign originally. I'm not sure. But yeah, it feels to me like it's just become a ubiquitous term that allows people a lot of stretch. And whether that be in denial or whether that be for humour, uh, that's basically what it is. Do you think people in the wider world, the outside of PR, you know, the people who, who are reading social media, reading the news, understand what fake news is or what it what it stands for? Because, I mean, I guess when you go back to the where it came from, it was all about disinformation and essentially lies, really. But do you think the general public understands that? Or is it just a phrase that is becoming banded about and no one really understands what it is now? I think actually that it's a really interesting subject and that we could probably talk about this all day because I, I think that fake news, especially online, has become almost a phrase that is able to be used around news that has been deliberately misappropriated. Okay. Now that happens a lot by news outlets that are perhaps on the far right or the far left uh, where they take something relatively mainstream and, and they pick out a statistic out of context. But the reason they're able to do that, I think, is the trash fire of Twitter, um, where, as I said, the currency is no longer community, it's outrage. Yep. And if there's misappropriated news, no one's going to look into it. And that certainly works around individuals. I don't know if you've read John Ronson's book on it. I'm probably getting the title wrong, but it's something along the lines of now you've been publicly shamed. Okay. It talks about you know people making a joke on Twitter, um, other people not getting it. And then, you know, you, you can land off a plane journey and find that you're a global trend, lost your job, you know, and it, it's all because of perhaps a misplaced joke that has been taken as um, a true reflection of your character. And obviously the, 
the significance of humor and certainly sarcasm is that you say things that you don't mean for comedic effect and people can take things um, that you don't mean as something that you mean on purpose. And I think that that can happen to a lot of different people, a lot of different audiences and a lot of different protagonists in that. But strangely, fake news is a really accurate description of it. And I think that's really fascinating that it's, it's not saying that this is completely false, but that this is a false representation of what happened. I think in a sense, therefore, it's a real term for our times. And that it does actually weirdly have a place, even though it's still a bizarre joke on Donald Trump. <laughs> Has a place in what way? I think it describes a very specific phenomenon that we experience now where, so where all media are social and so certainly social media and traditional media have a crossover. So, um, you know, you could send out a campaign to traditional media and they need to check out the information before they publish it. So they'll, even if they agree or disagree, they will, you know, provide a response to the information that they've been sent. What you find at the moment, though, is that media are really keen to cover the, um, the social media backlash around things. Yeah. Because that allows them the freedom to not need to represent the context, but just represent the context that everyone else gave the story. So all you need is one troll on Twitter and you can completely flip you know, any story that you like. And in a sense, then that news is, is, I'm not saying whether it's deliberate or not, but it is a very specific phenomenon where that outrage on social media becomes clickbait within digital media, which then becomes print and, and broadcast and, you know, the mushroom cloud grows. That's a fascinating way to, to boil it down to just one phrase. But it is something that is, um, I think, a perfect storm of lots of different situations on different channels that for me shows the the relationship between them all is is incredibly complex and it doesn't really isn't really served by existing phrases so that's why people latch onto something like fake news it's, it's interesting i saw even just this weekend completely unrelated but there was a rape claim against the footballer ronaldo some years ago and he's come out and said that is fake news and i was interested to see his his use of that term, because it appears from his sense to be jumping on something that people may or may not understand, but like you say, is very kind of vague. And, you know, I haven't read into the story or anything. It was just the use of that term that really struck me. What is the impact on communications then of this, like you say, phenomenon that's happening? I mean, what do PR people and communications people have to do Firstly, from a proactive sense in terms of ensuring that they don't get locked up in this stuff, but then also in terms of the reactive sense, which you've sort of experienced over the last week. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of significance, actually, for, for campaigns. I, I, I think looking at your Ronaldo example, I think it's really interesting from um, how you can express deliberate ambiguity through a phrase like fake news. Yeah. And actually, in an era when you need everything to be inside a headline, it actually can help you. There's no such thing as a clear-cut situation in many scenarios. So I think the reason why Ronaldo is using it is to provide some ambiguity because you know the situation might have happened, but in a different scenario as far as he's concerned to the person making those accusations. But what he's misunderstood there is that by injecting ambiguity into a statement like that, from a communication standpoint, the rules have never changed. That ambiguity does not work. Uh, when professing innocence, no. the word untrue is the word he was blushingly groping for. And yeah, yeah. that ambiguity then allows that oxygen of outrage for people to be able to say, well, he clearly did it then, yeah. which is the mistake from a communication standpoint. But also, there's no more information than him using fake news that these people are saying, well, he did it then, are, are working off. And you've had lots of people say when they hear people use that phrase, 
they immediately think that person's guilty. And I think that's because there's ambiguity there. Like I said before, it's an oxymoron. It's got a lot of poetic license. So you can use that to your advantage if you're making a joke, or it can be a disadvantage if you're trying to be clear. Yeah, and I think that is actually spot on because the kind of headline that I read was that he explained this as fake news. If he'd had just come out and said, this was lies, perhaps that, that ambiguity wouldn't be there. But like you say, you can kind of use the, the phrase intentionally in a clever way to provide ambiguity where actually it's beneficial to you to do so. Yeah, for sure. And I think ambiguity is something there's no room for anymore within social media. No. We've had a couple of campaigns, actually, where we were launching a new TV network, effectively, an online streaming TV network for BrewDog that's all craft beer and um, cocktail content. And traditionally, what we've done with beer was we've looked at, you know, the mainstream breweries and what was the dominant force. And we undermined them when we were launching beer. We did the same with finance when we launched crowdfunding and undermined banks. So we looked at what the most popular content on the Internet was, which obviously for men and women was porn. Uh, which we thought was shocking. Right. So we actually developed a campaign called Beer Porn, which um, was, I would say, universally criticised um, when it came out. Because, <laughs> because, you know, despite we'd asked for it, um, Brewdog had actually tweeted about the campaign with content that we'd not approved. And they'd said that beer is our porn um, as the first line, before then saying that this is our sarcastic attack on porn. And what we'd done was created a parody site that mocked um, and undermined pornography and said actually we think that people should reject that and instead watch content that they're passionate about it was genuine as far as we were concerned genuine satire on porn which has a horrible aesthetic it's sexist often racist and we wanted to make a sort of a statement that we weren't any of those things by obviously transposing it yeah but that one tweet that didn't include that context had too much ambiguity meant that people were able to, to immediately draw to the outrage poll. But I think actually it was deliberate in many quarters because it's fun to be outraged, right? right? So I think there's definitely, oh my gosh, you know, this is the wrong thing to have done. And you see this happen a lot with brands now where if we'd actually had the traditional media coverage come out first, which we'd already pre-sold in, everyone in traditional media thought that this was a great campaign and really well executed. And they understood the context and were covering it. The challenge that we had was that one tweet can, uh, can misrepresent what a campaign is about. No one will click through into the content other than to find parcels of outrage, not to read actually that this is deliberately outrageous, which you used to be able to do so much more. So I think there's, a, there's, a, there's consideration for creativity there, but also the whole process that actually there's a renewed reason to go traditional media first okay i think maybe five years ago you would say let's get everything on social media so that when you speak to a journalist you can say look there's already loads of conversation around it you need to get this covered yes. now i disagree that that's the right thing to do now i think that um you can get considered articles written and then have those be the content that gets shared with less ambiguity across social channels they're often desperate okay. to be outraged. I mean, that's just my point of view. But that's also one specific example, which obviously lives on the edge from a creative standpoint. And we knew exactly that that was the situation. It's one of those things where we will continue to push the envelope creatively. Yeah, yeah. But anyone who criticized that campaign, I didn't see one criticism that was accurate. And that's, that's interesting because criticism is fine. But it was interesting that you're able to create a dominant context. And in that situation, the response wasn't fast enough, it wasn't swift enough, and it, um, it, it wasn't concrete enough. Whereas with the situation with Scofflaw, we'd learned from that and we reacted, you know, 
within the hour with a really you know unambiguous statement even though we use the term fake news as a joke but we had the blog post up there as well and i think that that really helped us just nip everything in the bud there's still a lot of people saying i don't believe brewdog didn't know anything about it but you can't really do anything about that no absolutely so it was, it's an interesting phenomenon as i said and i think um, it works in in a positive way as well as a negative i think a lot of the time people are able to undermine things presented as fact and i think that's really important too so just to finish off then how much of a threat do you think fake news is to the pr industry i mean it's interesting because what i've just banged on about is sort of a bit of a, a gray area between everything i think that fake news is actually a tangible thing i think it's a way to describe different contexts and in that sense, it's something that needs to be, I would say in general, although having used it this week as a joke very effectively, I think that in general, brands need to avoid the term for it, fake news and where possible, never deliver any ambiguity in any messaging. Um, and I've given you a bit of a warning there around that as well. But I think the perhaps a perceived lack of trust around media isn't the major issue. I think unless you can provide the full context, which is more and more difficult across a very fragmented media landscape, you might find that your story is a different story. And I think in the PR world, that's important to recognize and to therefore use your community and use um, the people who trust the context and emotional standpoint, both with journalists and traditional media and online with your own communities to make sure they control that context from day one, because otherwise you might end up falling victim to it. And it's been really interesting chatting to you about this. It's a big topic that's going to rumble on and on, no doubt, over the next couple of years. But yeah, thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you jumping on to do this so quickly after you've had to deal with the, the scofflaw issue. And if Brewdog, by the way, want to send me a whole bunch of Elvis juice, then that would be great. I'm sure we can work something out for you. As long as you dress as Elvis and post as a picture, then that would be fine. <laughs> deal. Well, like I say, thank you very much for your time. Where can people get hold of you online if they want to talk to you more? So my Twitter handle is just at Alex Myers. And I get, think across all profiles, it's that. Or there's um, at ManifestLDN and for Manifest too. Lovely. Well, thank you again for your time. Cool. Thank you, Paul. Cheers. You can subscribe to Digital Download on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you've got any ideas for future topics you'd like to see covered or people you'd like to hear from, contact me on Twitter where I'm at the Paul Sutton. Thank you for listening.